to JTAP Podcast, episode 39 Alpha. Send it. I can do that. JTAX. Clearing it hot, making it rain, and bringing the boom boom. I was talking to a friend of mine, Mike, and we were on tour together. And in my logbook, all of my drops, all I'd written was the date, Afghanistan, and then what, like, what the aircraft was. And that was it. And Mike, in his logbook, had written the yeah. date and the, vi- and the name of the, the village or, you know, the name of where uh-huh. the, or the ops box or whatever it was that he could, you know, he could write in his logbook. I was like, oh, that's really great because yeah. obviously that was, you can go and look on a map. You can do that and the other. I was like, that's really great data, detail. All of mine just say Afghanistan, Afghanistan. And it's just ridiculous. Like, there's no history in that. Yeah. And then Steve right. showed me he had a, like a black diary like this. And every mm-hmm. job we'd been on, when he got back in, he'd sat for 10 or 15 minutes and written out the job as if he was talking to his son. Yeah. And, I, and he's like, he'd written every job, you know, so real plain English, nothing in depth, like today. And like, like he, he was, the reason he was showing it to me, he was showing to me a job that we'd been on. And he was like, today, me mm-hmm. and Neil went to a village called such and such. We got there by helicopter. You know, it was real simple. So that if his son, like his little boy, if he's like, I wrote it. He goes, so if I copped it, he could look back and go, this is what daddy was doing. And I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. that's genius. But he has his like, he has his whole yeah. tour. Like he has his tour in these books because he's written it that way. And I was like, man, that is some hindsight. Like right there, you know, yeah. reaching. But uh, yeah, I wish I'd done something like that. I'd probably try and be a little bit better at it in the future. So yeah. I just think right- very similar to that for my kids i i took there were there were like seven main events that that were interesting for me yeah um and those seven main events were were things that i wanted them to to like know like hey, i had i had a hand in this and this is something that i got to be a part of and this is how i felt like when i was doing it because i i started off pr- pretty young you know like like most of us did and uh just getting like just getting into it and just learning how things actually work versus like the movies and everything else mm. like i wanted i wanted to be able to tell my sons like i know you've seen this and i know this is what you think but like the reality of it is man like you just you go in there with the best intentions you go in there with as much training as you have and then you have to figure it out you have to you have to be creative you have to be a problem solver you have to be the type of person that doesn't that doesn't uh, look at a problem set and go oh that's impossible i can't do that no. there's always a way no matter yeah. what you want to do in your life if you want to do something there's a way to get to it you may have to go to the back door, but like, that's, that's just how it is. Yeah. I might have to, uh, I might have to chop a little bit of our conversation and just stick it on the end of the podcast. Cause, uh, obviously that's, uh, we like, we loot. We never know. It might come back up. All right. Um, uh, you ready to go oh, yeah. then Mitch? Yeah, I'm ready to do this. Cool. cool. Uh, welcome everybody to episode 39 of the JTAP podcast. Um, reached ahead in time, uh, to a friend of ours, Mitch, um, definitely a guy inside the Nine Foot Night Killers family at this point, a proponent of uh, what we're doing, and uh, we really appreciate him uh, being on board with us. Mitch, I appreciate you taking the time and sitting down. Absolutely. Um, what I like to try and do is tell a bit of a story, <clears throat> build a bit of a background on who you are so people can understand sort of where you came from. So if you take us like all the way back to the beginning, where did you grow up? Where did you come from? What's the sort of family structure look like as you're going up through high school and before you sign on the dotted line and decide to serve? Absolutely. All right. So um, I grew up in North Carolina, uh, 
pretty close to Charlotte, North Carolina, which is one of the, the bigger cities. Um, and when, like when I was young, my parents, all of my parents and everyone in, in, in my family had been involved in the military in one way or the other. Um, my dad actually left when I was a year old. So he kind of, he left, uh, you know, he left that, that vacancy, you know, for, for, for a lot of kids out there that, uh, that they have to kind of, kind of figure things out on their own for a while. And it actually, actually was never a, a bad thing. It was one of those, probably, probably a blessing in disguise. My mom, uh, she was in the National Guard uh, or the Reserves for a, uh, almost 30 years. She um, was one of those people who she could find a solution to, to anything with very limited resources. So if you could imagine being an 18-year-old female with two sons and a husband that had just left and no high school education, like that's where this story really starts. Because my mom is the one that set everything up in the world for me. She's the one that did all the work. She's the one that gave me all the inspiration and really showed me how to open doors that, that I probably would assume were closed if I didn't grow up with her in my life. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Sounds like a badass. Yeah. She's a, she's a solid, solid woman. Um, a little bit about her background is she shot for the, uh, for the, uh, her unit's rifle team as a female in like the seventies, which was unheard of. She was the first female on, on her rifle team. Um, and then she also, her job was a, uh, a counterintelligence agent. So she got to work in Germany in the eighties, um, as you know, a pseudo, you know, low level, like just running around doing, doing grunt work, kind of, kind of Intel person. Yeah. Um, but she got to go to some cool schools, man. She got to like go out to California and learn a bit of a language and then learn how to like do the makeup stuff and the hair stuff and get into places she shouldn't be into and things like that. Like she was, she was like that. She was just very creative. And that was her, like, that was her, that was her guard job. So that was her part-time thing. And full-time she worked for us airways and she okay. started off at the very, very bottom of the, like, no high school education, throwing bags into a plane every day for years. And the really, really cool thing about that is, is when you work for the airlines back in the eighties, like you're given flight benefits, you're able to travel. Um, you get to know a lot of people in a lot of different cities and a lot of different locations and being a baggage monkey, which is what they called them back then. You, you're, you're strong. You show up to work every day. You work for you know, 10 hours and you're basically picking up 50 pounds, 40 times an hour, every hour, you know? Yeah. And that, that showed her what hard work was and it showed her that she wanted to get ahead and, and, and do other things. And it showed her that, uh, through like through the airlines specifically, she could find ways to like work, you know, work in the front office, work at the desk, go into management and travel all over the world and see culture and see, uh, see things that people from where I'm from really never got to see. A little bit of background about North Carolina is around the Charlotte area. There's a lot of closed minded individuals, right? And you've got a lot of people that didn't really travel a whole lot. And the United States is, is world renowned for that people tend to you know stay at home because we have everything we need we've got the mountains we've got the beaches we've got you know everything inside the borders that we can you can spend a whole lifetime 
getting to know that country, just like most yeah. countries. I think and uh, in the United States, that's what most people do. I think in America, they get like, I know it sounds bad because it's one country. People get like a bit of a bad rap because if you think that if you turn around to a lot of people in England or in other European countries and say, like, have you been to every country in Europe? And it's like, well, no, I haven't. Or have you ever been on a holiday outside of Europe? And it's like, well, no, I haven't. It's the same thing. You know, there's, there's, there's people in America that haven't been to every state, but there's probably people that have been to more states in America than people have been to countries in Europe. Um, and I don't, maybe it's yeah. simpler, obviously, because it's one country, one currency, you, you know, one linking, etc. But like with the opening of the borders in Europe, which obviously I'm sure your mother could tell us about um, having served over there at that mm -hmm. sort of around that time. You know, what's the real excuse? Like people say, oh, people in America never leave America. But if you if you live in California and you go to New York City, you know, what's the difference between going from London to Italy in that comparison sort yeah. of thing? Exactly. Uh, you're, you hit the nail on the head. It's um, it, it's a way that we we kind of culturalize ourselves based on the melting pot of the United States, right? And other countries, when they look in at that, they're like, oh, well, you didn't you didn't explore, you didn't expand your horizons because you didn't go outside the border. And there's some validity to that. One of the fears that that people in the United States have is that if they go to another country, something you know something is going to be unknown to them. And the unknown mm. is, is, is frightening, right? So mm. a lot of people don't even make it into Canada or into Mexico because they're like, oh, those are other countries. You know, I, I know everything about the United States. I'm safe here. I'm comfortable here. And that's where they stay. And that's absolutely fine. But I do think from my point of view in my life, I, I've been lucky enough to travel to 56 countries worldwide. I worked in, in Europe for eight years. I've been to Southeast Asia. I've seen a lot of different cultures that that I would have never, I would have never seen the world from their point of view if I wouldn't have been, if I wouldn't have been um, stupid enough to just jump on a plane, and, yeah. and head out. Uh, and and I think uh, I think I owe every bit of that to my mom because she was yeah. that person. She was that person that would, you know, we we didn't have anything, but she would, she would jump on a plane with us on a Friday afternoon and fly to California and rent a car for 50 bucks for the weekend. And we'd sleep in the car and eat canned food, but we'd be in LA and we'd see all the sites. And then two weekends away from that, we'd be in Washington DC and seeing all the history from, from the country. Yeah. And you know, incredible. we went out with very, very minimal planning. Yeah. 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 She was just one of those people that could, she could make it make it happen with very very minimal stuff and that that translated into my life for sure yeah i love that is so i mean it seems like almost an obvious question but maybe it's not um obviously what then obviously coming up through high school and stuff like that um what leads you into serving is that obviously your mother's in the guard is there like coaches that you're with that are talking about it is there other members of the family that are talking about history in the military so my mom got remarried two times. Both times she got remarried, she got remarried to people who had served in the military. My first stepfather, um, he was a drill instructor and an infantryman. And he, uh, he was also um, really, really big into philosophy. He was studying philosophy at, at, a, uh, at a local college of Belmont Abbey. And um, he gave me a lot of really, really like poignant insight into like what life was all about. He was very, he was very much a deep thinker and very much um, one of those just very 
true to life type of individuals. Like he, he believed in his, in his, um, in his mantra, he believed in his modus operandi and, and he lived it. So seeing that, you know, seeing that was very inspirational to me. Like he was a big guy. He was like, I want to say when, when we met, he was probably six foot four, 230, 240 pounds. Like he's, he's a big fellow and just larger than life. And, you know, he was, he was that guy. And my second stepdad, he was also in the military. Um, and he, he was one of those people who had gone to Vietnam when he was 18 years old as a grunt Marine and, you know, went through his first tour and lost half of the people in his platoon and then volunteered to go back as an interrogator, learning Vietnamese on his own and like, like serving again. And then when he got back to the United States, he was an undercover uh, narcotics police officer in Raleigh, North Carolina for years. So, so I was really surrounded by some pretty like quality male role models. Uh, um, because those were the type of people that my mom attracted, you know, like, like she was, she was type A, she was very outgoing. She was very uh, motivated. And when you have a tribe like that, when you have a, a group of people that you, that are like minded in, in those regards, I mean, inspiration just kind of comes. It just, it, it's, it's a natural, a natural thing. Anybody that's been a part of a really good team, understands that uh, completely yeah so, so at what point do you like find a recruiter or or where what comes sort of after high school for you so i guess back when i was like six seven and eight years old like i used to draw planes like religiously i could tell you every plane in the inventory in the united states and most other countries by by their wings engine fuselage and tail by the time I was like 10, 11, I just had this, I had this passion for flight, like something about seeing something in the sky, just screaming like mock snot as fast as it can go across the planet. Just that hit me as like the, the pinnacle of, 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 you know, us and, and, and international renown. Like those things just, they symbolized, they symbolize technology and they symbolize the future. And, and as a kid growing up, you're like, holy cow, like that's the coolest thing on the planet. And I was like that from the time I was, I was 10. I always knew it was going to be the air force. I always knew it was going to deal with planes. I knew that I was going to do that from the time I was very, very little. So in high school, I got into the, the junior ROTC program and that junior ROTC program was brand new and it was you know run by a really good dude um uh and it was one of those those things where as soon as i got into it i just fit like my parents raised me very militantly so the the format was completely understood um and i, I really did well in it uh, i ended up being the, the commander of our unit and i ended up going to um, mobile alabama and winning a national competition for color guard and and I was, you know, athletic and in sports. I played, uh, I played American football and I played American soccer and, and uh, I did a little bit of wrestling uh, when I was, when I was young. And I knew that that was going to be my, my path. Like I had never, never even questioned it. It's just something that kind of, uh, like it was known by the time I was 15 that that's what was happening. Yeah. But 
Initially, I thought I was going to be a pilot, and then I found out I am not smart enough to be a pilot. <laughs> well, 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 maybe we'll come back around to how smart you are maybe later on. So yeah. you, decide, you decided the Air Force. You, do you yeah. like take yourself to the recruiting office? Is it something that through the ROTC, like you can just sort of like speak to I just, one of them? I just walk up to the front door. I just like I, – I, I looked on uh, – in looked looked around the town and found on the recruiting stations and they had the the army the marine corps and the air force all kind of side by side and i just went sh straight to the recruiter and i was like hey this is this is where i'm going to be this is what i'm going to do um and i i we take this uh this asbab test it gives us like an indication of what we would probably be good at whether it's mechanical or electrical or if it's some type of engineering field and i scored really high in um electronics for some reason. And I think it's because I destroyed every electronic thing that we had in my house when I was a kid, ripping it apart and trying to build other things. So I scored really high there. So initially, uh, when I talked to the recruiter, they said, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're going to do great as a navigation systems apprentice on the F-15. So I was like, okay, that sounds freaking awesome. I love jets. Let's do this. So I initially joined the joined the Air Force as a as like some type of like electronic nerd, you know, underneath the wing of a of a jet, and um and that would have been absolutely fine with me. I would have I would have probably been very happy doing that. But that moment happened, you know, when you're when you're a kid, 19 years old, and you're in basic training for the first time, and everything's going well for you, and you're you're kind of doing pretty good. You got that one guy. This one guy that just walks into the room wearing his uniform with all the patches and all the army patches and the deployments and all this stuff. And he looks at you and says, all right, you can do what you're doing right now, or you can step up and go do this PT test. And then we'll assess you and see if you want to go be, you know, this other special thing. And for me, that was, that was that, that moment. I had this, this yeah. guy come in who had, yeah, he, they just, they, they put the hook in, they showed me a picture. And in this picture, they had this, uh, this dude wearing this black beret in this BDU, you know, the old school, like, like eighties BDU uniform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's rocking that thing, looking, looking crisp, looking good. And just surrounding him on the ground is like all of the equipment that he had at his disposal. There were two forties, sixties at the time there were like, he's got his rifle, he's got his pistols, he's got his, his ATV is in the picture. There's a big rucksack full of stuff. There's, all this gear, all this kit. And as soon as I saw it, like my brain just went into like, oh, I want all those things. I want to be able to play with all those things. I want to un understand them. I want to know why he has them. I want to know what that is. You know, like, like my brain just went into overdrive. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, all right, well, I'm, I'm trying out. I'm, I'm going to go that route. I'm going to try out. So that moment was that moment where like I put everything on the line and said, I don't care what it is. I'm going to go do that with everything that I've got. And, uh, that took me into the air forces like battlefield airmen or their, their, their enabler division of special operations command. So for us, it's called a attack P. Um, we, we wear the coveted black beret until recently we all got switched over to the air forces, uh, special, like their special weapons section um and now we uh now we all wear the red the red beret from what i understand the one zulus but um 
that that was my like that was my turning point from from like taking an everyday normal job uh turning wrenches and loving life and being underneath the wing of a jet i went from that into like all right send me anywhere i will do anything give me those toys give me that training and i will i will i will break my neck for you and that 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 was probably the most that was that was the pivotal moment in my life that kind of changed my direction yeah it's it's an interesting one because that story is like you know it's such uh it keeps coming up and up and up again you know guys i started as this and my intention was to do this and then that guy comes in the door and he you know plays you a video or says the right thing or he's you know carrying himself the right way and it's like yep that's it i'm doing it so like obviously you went through the the old version of uh, of the tap p pipeline and came out i'm I'm guessing as a romad in the old version of it. Yep. So what, how long do you stay as a romad before obviously, and what like you do an operational cycle in that time before you rotate back as a, to JTAC school. So the cool thing about the, the one Charlie four community back in the day is when you, when you show up as a romad, you, you're basically learning your primary skills as a radio operator and as a, as a driver and somebody who's using targeting equipment and you're learning all these really basic skills, but you're learning them at an extremely high level because you're supporting this JTAC who's got a lot of stuff on his plate and a lot of very important things that he's got to do. And he's got to be able to trust you. Right? So you have to become that professional. You have to own that job and you, you have to be a, you know, you have to be somebody that he can, confidently leave like completely just take his hands off of you and let you go do your work so that he can go do his and that that came with some really good um they came with some really good opportunities to 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 be a uh like an intern for a very knowledgeable person and i'm a huge proponent of this a huge proponent of this there's a, a guy in my in my past his name's um tom and tom was he was that guy who took me under his wing and taught me everything that he knew about how to make a, make a, a, a radio system talk from New York to Korea, you know, with very minimal, you know, tools and assets to your disposal. And when you, when, when I, when I became his underling, when I became his little, his, his little romad, like that, that was the, the time when I really started to develop uh, some intelligence about like, how to be really, really good at my job and how to really support, you know, the, the needs of the military. Um, and I think that, that the transition that we've gone to now where we have this, this kind of zero to hero program, you're going to lose a lot of that. You're going to lose a lot of that mentorship uh, mm. because you're not going to have that, that block of time in your life. And for me, it was two years. I was a, I was a romad for two years from 1998 until 2001 before I, before I went to, uh, at the time, JFC, the, 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 uh, the ETAC program way, way back in the day before it became the JTAC program. Um, enlisted terminal attack controllers. That was the, the flavor of the, of the late eighties, early nineties. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So and, you get, obviously I think that's interesting because in the, even in the civilian community now, there's a lot more, sort of leaning towards getting people back into uh, apprenticeships and things like that and it's strange how obviously the military is going the other way like it's almost like yeah you know the civilian world went away from it for a while there was a few still there 
and now like the civilian world's ramping them back up and the military's almost to go in the other direction which is unusual i mean you think there's nothing better than learning from someone that's been doing it for for a long time and especially if you can support them in what they're they're going to do um you know we'll see only time will tell if it, it's been the right decision or not um yeah so, agreed so you're doing your uh etac as it was or you know becoming a, a young jtac just around 2001 you know what's that mm -hmm. pipeline look like then and, and how's that do you rotate back into the same unit or do you go to a different unit? Do you have to make choices at that point? So I was up at Fort Drum, New York for, and I was working with the 10th mountain division um, in, in during that time period. And basically training happened uh, on a case by case basis. Like you, you worked in the, in, in the shop, you showed that you were dependable. Uh, you made your mistakes as a young kid. They see how you, you know, react to those mistakes and, and, and grow to be a, a, a more, a, you know, dependable human being based on your, your successes and failures. And then they start racking and stacking you for different schools. So they'll say, all right, you've, you've gotten to this level of your career. We're going to send you to a leadership school. And then if you do well there, then maybe they'll send you to, to airborne school or air assault school. My first school that, that I went to at my unit was air assault school. And that was, it's a, it's a very good course. Um, it gets a lot of heat because it's not like, it's not a special operations course. There's nothing extremely difficult about it. You just have to be, you know, willing to, to learn. You have to be willing to do the PT test. There's a 12 mile ruck march with 30 pounds, which isn't, isn't horrible. Um, and then, uh, you've got to be willing to rappel off of a tower and rappel out of a helicopter and just have the intestinal fortitude to you know lean off of a wall and trusting your equipment making sure that you, you you've done the right thing to to do that safely and mitigate all the risk involved in that in that scenario so that was a really good school to go to it's like like i would consider that like a, a very very basic um, military school that teaches you a little bit about trust a little bit about you know how the military expects you to accept some risk to get a job done and how it wants to it wants to create skills in you. Like the, the military really wants to do that for you. Yeah. And if you give it the opportunity to, it absolutely will. It'll teach you a lot of different things. Um, from air assault school, my next, well, I guess, I guess my first real big school was, was survival school. And that one was another really good school that taught you, you know, how to, how to operate in a, in a, confined environment imprisoned by other people that are trying to enact psychological warfare techniques on you to to uh generate some type of some type of narrative that that you're either sympathetic to the enemy's cause or that you've fallen apart and that all the information has been given away and all this kind of stuff that was a really interesting course too it's another one that that develops you and teaches you a lot of things gives you a couple of skills and then uh, Air, airborne school is another one where you, you know, you do some PT, you throw on a, you throw on a, 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 a parachute and you, you know, get the guts to sit in a chair for four hours and wait for your flight and uh, try to stay awake. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, you, you, you jump out of a plane and, and then hope the landing's all right. You know? Yeah. I used to love uh, chalking in at like four in the morning and, and then sitting on the mats, leaning on your body behind you for a jump that was happening yeah. like at lunchtime. You're like, I'm, what am I fully geared up at four in the morning, laying on top of each other? You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I've, I've basically taken ratchet straps and I've, I've surrounded my body with it, trying to protect all the, all the soft, squishy parts. I tighten those things down as hard as I can. And I'm just, just waiting, waiting to, to, to get out of that thing. Yeah. And I think that's what encourages most people to jump out of the plane. Yeah. Right. You're like, I will dude, get- if I could just jump out of this plane, I could take all this crap off. <laughs> oh, went low level through the hills and stuff like that blokes throwing up and all that yeah. kind of stuff you're like i don't want to be in this this hot yeah. tin anymore with all these people i want to get out so <laughs> yeah um, so one of, one of yeah. my favorite stories in the military um when, when we were this was like the third jump right like we had already had a couple of jumps we had broken the seal everybody's pretty comfortable so we're super early in the morning, getting ready. Everybody's in their kit, sitting on the benches, waiting to load up to the airplane. And I've got my chalk and the, the chalk in front of me, and we're just like sitting there four hours, staring at each other, you know, trying not to fall asleep. You fall asleep, you get smoked, you get smoked, everybody's unhappy, so on and so forth. So we come up with these little games, right? Like, all right, what, what can I do to stay awake? And we, we started challenging each other with the MRE packet that we had, right? So they do the, the cracker challenge where they smash up the crackers and try to eat the crackers in two minutes without, you know, without any water or anything else. And people are, people are failing that miserably. And it looks great because when they, when they cough, it's like a, like, <laughs> it looks just like sand out of like the mummy just flying out of their face. It's fantastic. And then, it, and then somebody ratches it up, right? They're like, all right, well, the cracker challenge, that's been done, nobody cares. Let's, let's snort all the salt in the, oh. in the MRE package. That'll, that'll wake you up, you know? So one dude like, grabs the salt and snorts it. Another guy's like, oh, well, there's pepper in there too. So he grabs oh. the salt and pepper, mixes it, snorts that. And we used to have these little bottles of Tabasco sauce, right? Oh. These little bottles of Tabasco. I used, to, I used to collect those things, man. I don't know why, but they were like, they were like, they were the coolest thing to me. I just, I love them. So, um, so my, my big bright idea as a young, dumb kid was like, oh, I can, I can one up that I'm going to grab that Tabasco sauce, put it in my eyeball. That's great. Oh. Great idea. <laughs> so I did poured it all in my hands, smacked my face with it, rubbed it around and my eyeball immediately flared up and everybody's just looking at me like, Oh my God, you're, you're absolutely insane. <laughs> And it's really not about being insane. It's more about being just stupid and making everybody else laugh and being willing to like, to like, just do whatever it takes to like, like bring up the spirits of your buddies. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I'm sitting there and I'm like, <laughs> I'm crying profusely. People around me are laughing. We get smoked anyway because we've broken the, the, the quiet thing. Right. But it was one of those moments where I'm just like, yeah, that was, that was one of the dumbest things I've ever done, but it was one of the funniest times. Like I, I could still <laughs> reach back to guys and be like, I, you remember the Tabasco in the eyeball? Yep, sure do. Good times. Yeah, times. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. So, <laughs> you go and you come out of those schools. What? Where do you end up going off of the back of all of that? Do you go back to the unit you were at, or do you go to another location? Do you, you do you find another pathway after that? Nine times out of ten, depending on what the school is, you go right back to the unit that you came from and you bring those skills back and you try to train up the guys underneath you. It's another one of those in like a, uh, internship type situations, right? They teach you so that you can go back and familiarize guys with the, with the, uh, with the ideas that you learned and you can prepare them to go on to the next school. That's how it should. And, and I think that, I think it's a brilliant concept. I think Germany does a really good job of like assessing people in their schooling process. And then they allow them tracks to go off into based on what they're, what they're good at at a very young age. 
versus keeping them in high school for four years where they're learning like geography and history and literature and all this other stuff. They, they give the opportunity to kind of focus on a skill. And I think, I think those skills are some of the best, there's some of the best ways to get somebody prepared for life. I was thinking about this the other day. Some guy came up with this, this phrase, uh, Jack of all trades, master of none. I don't, I don't believe in that. I, I don't believe in that at all. I believe Jack of all trades for sure. Jack of all trades for sure. But be a master of one or two. Find something that you absolutely love and take it to the nth degree. Learn, mm. learn it as, as deeply as you possibly can. Yeah. You know, like, so Jack of all trades, you know, master of one for sure. Master of one, master of two. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's important to um, push hard on certain skills, you know, otherwise, you, you know, you're just going to be drifting. Um, yeah. So you, you're a JTAC and you're uh, in the seat now of the, the other way around. So you've got guys coming up under you, you know, did you, how many times does your like sort of unit go away with you, you know, in the position that you're in before you sort of move on? So let's see when, when I was in New York, nine 11 happened. Um, so we had the, we had the 10th mountain division that was getting ready to spin up and, I wasn't quite qualified uh, yet to go with those guys. So they selected a handful of like really, really solid joint terminal attack controllers and romads, put them on a bird and sent, sent them out to New York. And I ended up jumping on a bird and going to Korea because I had volunteered to, to, to go over there for, 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 you know, for the opportunity to, to see a new duty station. Right. Um, that whole scenario was, was, was really cool because you got to see my unit get together for the first time and, and transition from a training unit into a deployment unit, right? Where people were no longer worried about cleaning the vehicles to the nth degree. They were worried about, okay, what, what boots do we need to buy? What weapons do we need to buy? What unit are we going out with? What, what guns do they shoot? Can we get in on training with those guys so we, so we know how to shoot the guns? Can we do movement to contact drills with them? Can we go to the MLC four and do room clearing? Can we, can we get, you know, this training right now, because up until that point, that the whole, the whole military was completely different, completely different starched uniforms. Every day was, was a training, was a training day, but we weren't really, we weren't, we weren't given specific direction. Like we didn't know for a fact that we're going to be hiking in the hills of Afghanistan for the next, you know, nine months. And that, that was a really, really interesting transition to, transition to see, seeing people's mindsets just switch at the, at the drop of a coin. My commander did this really cool thing where he basically told the entire unit to come in. He shut the doors to this building, put on the band of brothers, and we watched it from start to finish. Watched the whole, like the whole thing. People brought food, people brought snacks, and we, 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 we became a, a family at that point. Like we became like a group of, you know, I was like one of the redheaded stepchildren, but there was dad and there was mom. And like, we knew that these guys were going to be taking us into, in, into warfare. And, and we had no idea what it was going to be like. Like no one, no one could tell us at that point what it was like to fight in Afghanistan. So we were just going into it, you know, you know, we were just going into a blind, we're doing it live. And, and it was, it was a really, really cool thing to, to see, to witness. And I feel like that's how my entire military career has been. I kind of feel like I was a witness to everything. You know, I was available to anything. I would deploy to, you know, to any country. You could ask me to go anywhere, I'd go anywhere. 
um, Bangladesh, Thailand, Hawaii, Japan, Korea, Afghanistan twice, Iraq three times. Like it didn't matter to me. I, I, I did not care. Um, and it was, it was because I wanted to be a part of life. Right. And I was just lucky enough to be one of those guys who was, who was in the military when life just happened. You know, the twin, uh, twin towers went down. We, we, we got attacked. We lost, we lost lives. The country came together. We decided to, to, to unify under a purpose of, of, you know, trying to uh, rid the world of some, some horrible philosophies and, and some nasty people. And that, that was, uh, that as, as weird as it is for most people, it's probably, it's probably going to come off. It's going to come off odd to some people, but you never want war. You never want to see people lose their lives. You don't want to see politics fail and young men go to battle and, and lose themselves because those men, a lot of those men are some of the best men that this world has to offer. Right. But if you're a soldier, if you join the military to be a soldier and, and to support your country and to be, be that man at the gate, and war happens, and you're a part of that, it's one of the most fulfilling things you're, you'll ever do in your life. It's like getting, like I, I assume, it's like be, being an NFL football player and getting to like go into your first game. You know, you're not just practicing anymore. Like it's like, it's real. It's, yeah. it's, it's time to get this job done. That, that was a, it, it was a, it was a gift to a young, young, young man who really had a lot of theories and philosophies on, on what life was and what war was and what killing was and what saving lives was like, you just have all these, these movie style ideas and then being given the, 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 the gift of knowledge, seeing it for yourself and experiencing it, being given that gift is, is, I mean, that's, that's, that's a blessing. Like it's, it, it just is the opportunity to be a part of it. It was just like, I, I could never be, I can never be thankful enough for it, even though it was one of the most, you know, difficult and at times heart wrenching things you'd ever be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a great path. I mean, it, it's an interesting time in all of our lives. I, I joined in 2001 uh, in March and obviously finished my training in September, 2001. So the world instantly changed, you know, for me as a young man, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I can see the same thing as you where everything changed and it was very much more focused. And I, I think that we need to sort of remember those things and not drift back into a place where we're not, you know, there's, there's always a purpose for what you're doing and there's always a purpose for your training. Um, not, not just the case of we're doing it because, you know, it's what we do. That's a dangerous position yeah. to move into. What's, um, what was sort of like from an outsider's perspective, looking in at the community that, uh, you know, Romad, JTAC, life, and everything like that. What's sort of the biggest myth that you've heard about that community? Because, you know, like you were saying, the good thing about some things is like getting the reps with the unit you're going to support um, and mm -hmm. going to going and doing all the stuff that you're doing. Because I do find that, like, sometimes there's certain things that we have to do in isolation. You know, we have to go away and we have to do certain elements of training in isolation. Um, and we do get to spend a lot of time with air crew and stuff like that, but they even have their own myths about us as well. Um, mm -hmm. But like for you, what's been the biggest myth that you've sort of had to either dispel or you'd want to dispel about the community? So one of the things that I love about the community is 
the idea of like being a beer drinking bomb dropper pipe hidden like like lunatic right <laughs> that's a that's a it's 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 a myth it's a myth it's that that's not what makes this career field an amazing thing what makes this career field an amazing thing are those truly truly professional warriors that look at the look, look at their life and look at their 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 uh their unit look at their team and they see the bigger the bigger picture the most brilliant the most brilliant warriors that i've seen in this in this job are actually extremely professional and extremely dedicated human beings you know they're not just womanizing and drinking and shooting guns and blowing stuff up and setting porches on fire like that's that's not what it's all about right like some of that stuff does happen as a result of like of like being in the moment and being full of passion and vigor right like absolutely that that kind of stuff does happen there's some great stories you know from guys that have done crazy things in their lives but none of that happens without the professionals none of that happens without putting the work in first like a lot of kids that get into this a lot of younger guys and, and I, I got the the luxury of being a, a instructor at the at the schoolhouse in germany for for several years for three years and as an instructor i see a bunch of young like young romads that are that are coming up to their jtac life and their 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 idea is like party rock star that kind of stuff and yeah that that's that's cool that if that does happen that's fun but what gets you there is all of the hard work that you went through all those four o'clock in the morning get up and go do that eight mile ruck with 120 pounds on your back don't say no to to, to, to crap deployments. If a tough job comes down, do the tough job, volunteer to do all the hard things. And, and that's, what's going to give you that, uh, that emotional satisfaction, knowing that you've, that you've developed your team, that you've contributed to the fight, that you've, you've done something real. It's not the partying, the partying, like I, I could, I could probably remember half of the partying that I've done in my life. Like none of that stuff really, really mattered. The things that mattered are, you know, that time in, in, in Missoula when you're on a route clearance team and you've worked for three weeks to get, you know, this mission approved because the routes are black and you had to study all your, your munitions. You had to look at the different maps. You had to do train analysis. You had to find out what the, where was the worst fight in the, in, in the AO because you want to be on that team because you want to get into that battle. But in order to be that person, you don't just walk in stupid, you know, half drunk. You you prepare yourself. You do the PT. You study your 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 equipment. You make sure that you know everything that you can absolutely possibly know about radios and the chain of command and laws of armed conflict. You you want to know all of those things because when when metal meets the meat, you want to make sure that you're on the most capable side of that fight and and capable comes from training luck favors the bold absolutely but luck also favors the prepared yeah i mean you have to have the guts to get up there and go do it but if you're not prepared to do it and you get up there and you fail your team that's the worst possible feeling you'll ever have in your life yeah it's um it's it, it's that thing of like 
um, you know, giving yourself the opportunity because like, you know, a reputation, a good reputation buys you like amazing opportunities. And if you're the guy who's like mm -hmm. told, go, you know, take out the trash, sweep out the hangar, wash down the vehicles, make sure everything's turned around, you know, the vehicles are refueled and, you know, all the gear's good to go. All the radios have been checked. Everyone's ANSILs are working. You know, there's a, there's a crappy weekend duty and, you know, everybody else is going home to their families and you're like, yes, we, I'll, I'll hold that so everyone can go see family and stuff like that. You become that guy where everyone's like, you know, uh, that, that's the cornerstone of, of, yeah. of our community. And, you know, there's never been like talking about partying and good times. All of those things have always happened when we've been away on an amazing opportunity and it's been a small team yeah. job. So it's like, we're only taking a small team to this far away destination to do this, this job. And you get on that by being that guy, by getting good reps, by be, like making mistakes, screwing things up and everyone watching you going, well, he screwed that up last time, but he's got it right three times later. So that I can see that he, they keep coming back for more and they keep putting the effort in. So we're going to take them on this job. Then you get on the job, you do the job, you execute it really well. And at the end, there's an epic story about, you know, the cool down that happened afterwards. But if you don't get on the job, you don't get the story. You know, you're just still yeah. the dude, you know, just nine to five turning over. And it's like, why do I never get on all the cool jobs? It's like, well, you know, you've got to get the experience first. And how do you get the experience? Well, you've got to put yourself in the position, you know, you've got to put yourself in that position, right? Yeah. That, I think a lot of people in life kind of do that. They put the cart before the horse. They see, they see all the rewards before they see the work, you know, and that's, that's something that I think, I think everyone in life, my kids, myself, every, everyone in life, if they could, if they can see the work first, if they could see like, this is what I have to do in order to be good at what I'm doing, then I will see the rewards at the end of it. Or maybe not, maybe you don't even see the rewards. A lot of times the reward is, Hey, that was a really good job. That, that felt good. I felt like I did that better or as good as anyone else has ever done it before. Yeah. That's that most of the time, that's the absolute best reward you can ever have. Yeah. There's a book and uh, maybe you'll come on the, on the, on the soul feed podcast. There's a little, there's a book called the little red hen. I don't know if you've ever read it. Mm -hmm. It's a kid's book. I've heard of it. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah. It's a kid's book. Like it's, you know, it's supposed yeah. to read it to your kids when they're little kids, but people, adults should go and read the little red hen, because if you've forgotten <laughs> that from when you were a child, um, you know, you could probably talk for hours about the one simple story that's taught uh, in that book. Thank you. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen. All our podcasts sit on the nine foot night killer collective soul feed forge, not made and the JTAP podcast. Take some time, maybe listen to one of the other podcast series that you're not listening to and give us your feedback. All these things only happen because of the Nine Foot Night Killer community and we really appreciate them. Thank you everybody for listening.